title of this, of this chapter, How Should We Meet Our Tests? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Last week we considered Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness after his baptism by John. We discuss the question, does Satan exist? <coughs> Excuse me. All of us experience temptation of one kind or another in our lives. Some of us frequently, others only occasionally. Whether temptation comes to us <coughs> from our own subconsciousness or from outside ourselves is secondary to the fact that it does come and that we must deal with it. More important then is the question how to deal with it. In fact, how to deal with tests of any kind. Martin Luther flung an ink pot at the devil who had appeared to test him. A dark stain on the wall of Luther's cell is pointed out to tourists in support, to support, of, in support of this story. <clears throat> Unfortunately, our trials are not often so, <clears throat> so summarily dismissed. As a fellow monk once said to Swami Kriyananda, speaking of Satan, if only I could get my hands on him. Jesus, during his temptation in the wilderness, overcame them and thereby set an example for all time by clinging the more determinedly to God. As Paramahansa Yogananda used to say, darkness cannot be driven out of a room with a stick. Once you turn on the light, however, the darkness <clears throat> will vanish as though it had never been. <clears throat> <clears throat> 
Jesus manifests this principle. The Bible tells us, therefore, that at last, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the devil leaveth him. And behold, angels came and ministered unto him. In the Bhagavad Gita, the point is clarified further by the added explanation that there are three qualities in human nature. Sattvic, or spiritually elevating, rajasic, or ego activating, and tamasic, or spiritually darkening. It is this triune aspect of human nature that the third chapter refers to with the words, as fire is hidden by smoke, as a mirror is dulled by rust, and as an embryo is enclosed in the, room, in the womb, so is the indwelling self enveloped by desire. Yogananda explained that each of these examples describes one of the qualities or gunas. Sattva guna, that which elevates our consciousness, can be freed of any identity with ego by a little puff of meditation and right affirmation. Rajoguna, which embroils the ego in restless activity, can be worked off with a little more and a little longer effort. Tamoguna, embracing as it does such mental states as laziness and stupidity, can only be outgrown in time, since it inhibits even the desire for self-improvement. The example Jesus gave us was intended more for those in whom sattva guna is predominant. But if you yourself find elements in your consciousness that resist even the effort to cling to God in prayer and meditation, don't despair. Patience, as it has been well said, is the fastest path to God. As long as your efforts take you steadfastly in the right direction, you will come, right, come out right in time. Remember Yogananda's words, a saint is a sinner who never gave up. If, however, your nature impels you, even against your will, to move in the wrong direction toward egoic desires and away from God, strive at least to detach yourself mentally from your wrong actions, which are induced by habit. The time will come when their own stored-up energy will tire and diminish. At that time, if you have not contributed to that energy, by your own, by your consuming will, you will find it possible at last, I'm sorry it said, by your consenting will, you will find it possible at last to redirect your energies more constructively. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh,
Welcome everybody again to Sunday service at Ananda Village. For those of you here, and for those of you who are joining us online, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm Nayaswami Jaya, and here with me this morning is Nayaswami Sadhana Devi. And it's our pleasure to be with you to be able to share these teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda with all of you. The topic for today, as it was introduced by the, this reading today, was how do we face our tests or challenges, maybe is a nice word to say and use it. And the one thing we can say is that every one of us has tests and challenges. It's a condition, if we're going to be born into this world of duality, we have an identity, we have a personality. If we're in this world, it's inevitable that we're going to be tested because this is not our true home. And our job in this life is to perfect ourselves to be able to, you might say, graduate from this school of learning in which we find ourselves in. And when you go to school, what do you do? You take tests. And God sends these tests to us, these challenges to us. So there is no one who escapes tests. Some people say suffering. And that too, nobody escapes suffering, pain. Perhaps some people can transcend pain, but really the only escape from this is to be able to transcend this world in which those are realities. In God, is there suffering? No, there's not in God suffering, nor is there pain and suffering. Unless you were to say suffering out of empathy or concern for other people, wishing other people too, would be able to have that state of consciousness. And one of the things that I'd like to speak about today is a little bit about this subject of tests and challenges and a conception, or maybe it's better to say a misconception, that people think that, oh, if I face challenges, it's somehow correlated with my spiritual depth, my spiritual path, my spiritual attainment. And all of us in our life, I think we've seen over the last year, perhaps in the last month or so, we've seen things happen to people, people we know, family members, distant people that have gone through very difficult times. We've seen tragedies happen. We've seen people die, friends die, devotees pass away. And sometimes there's this thought that passes through that difficult things happen. Why are they happening to us? Devotees, we should be protected from these sorts of things. We shouldn't be tested in this way. But that's not how this world is made. This world is made of tests and challenges, suffering, if you will. And the challenge for us is not that those come into our life. Our challenge is how are we going to respond to the difficult things that come to us sometimes in life. And that's really what the spiritual path and that's what the life of a devotee is, is responding to those things. Now, I'd like to tell a story, a very ancient story. I think most of you have heard of this story. Some of you know the story. A few have probably read the story, and that's the story of Job. Now, before I tell the story, 
Job, you should realize, is out of the Old Testament, of course, and it's a fable. So take it as a fable. And what does a fable have? It has lessons, dramatized lessons, you might say. Now, Job, is ma it's made clear right at the very beginning of this scripture, from this story, it's made clear that Job was a man who loved God. Job was a man who was righteous. He knew what to do that was right, and he acted rightly, and he loved God. So one day, God was speaking with Satan, and they were having a conversation. Remember, this is a fable, but uh, God, God, and fa God and Satan were having a conversation, and uh, God brings up the name of Job as an example of a righteous man, and Satan says, hmm, ha, he's righteous, he says he loves you, but that's because you give him so many blessings, you protect him, you you've, look at how wealthy he is, he's got all these good things, and of course he's going to be righteous and do the right thing and express his love for you because you've given him so many blessings in life. God says, no, 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 God, he, Job is a righteous, loving man. And Satan's not convinced. And he says, Satan says to God, how about this? Allow me to test him. And God thinks about it and he says, okay, I'll allow you to test him just to demonstrate. But on one condition, you cannot take his life. And so Satan says, okay. And he goes about his business, the satanic business that he's engaged in. And he, <laughs> he, he tests him. He takes away all of his riches. One thing happens after another calamity. He loses his lands. He loses his houses. He loses his money. He loses everything of, of material value. Then, one by one, his 10 children die. Tragic circumstances, and they're, his, and they're gone. But yet, Job remains faithful. He does not understand why. He says, why God, why? I don't understand, but he still loves God, and he's righteous. And so God says to Satan, well, you see? And he says, well, let me test him a little bit more. And God reminds him, well, you can't kill him. <laughs> so, and, and Satan says, okay. He goes and now, he takes away all of his, the, his good name, you might say. People begin to revile him. Oh, this fellow is bad news. You know, let, so let, they shun him. He's not liked by anybody. He's somewhat condemned by people. And, and then, worse, you know, worse yet, he begins to lose his health. And he loses his, he, now he doesn't have friends, he doesn't have his health, he doesn't have any property, he doesn't have any money, and uh, his wife is quite angry with him. <laughs> and, <laughs> and finally, he's, he's still going along, and, and Satan then says, now he covers his whole body in boils and pain and oozing sores. And he's in agony all day long. And then 
he does have three friends still. They're not local, they're far away, and they hear about him. And they said, let's go and talk to Job and, and, you know, and see what has become of him. So the three friends come and they visit Job, and instead of consoling him, they begin to interrogate him. They say, Job, what did you do? God is righteous. God is fair. God is all justice. Certainly, if you were living a just and righteous life, he would not treat you like this. So what is it that you did? And they begin to interrogate him one after the other. And Job says, I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember anything. I've done the best I can, and I just do not understand. So, he, so he's not happy about his situation at all. But he doesn't understand, but he loves God. Now, pretty soon, the, you know, they, day after day, they're interrogating him, and he's getting exasperated with his friends to the point where he's in mental pain, physical pain, psychic pain, spiritual pain, and he's suffering. Well, finally, enough time goes by that God appears to Job. And he comes to him, it said, in a whirlwind and talks. The voice comes out of the whirlwind and says, Job, you have pleased me greatly. You have remained faithful in your love to me. You have, and, and gives him that encouragement. And all Job can say is, yes, Lord, but why? He wants to know why. And God sends to him, where were you, Job, when I created this world? Where were you when I made the seasons? Where were you when all that you see was nothing but, you know, in, in the ether? In other words, he tells him, this is not your world. This is my world. And if you would know, and the lesson, of course, out of that is this, if you would know God's ways are not man's ways. And if you would know God's ways, which is what Master summed it up, if you know, want to know God's ways, you have to know God. But mankind has the intellect and wants to understand through the mind. And he tells him that. And then he turns, God turns his attention to three, the three, three friends and says, when you three, your friend was in pain, your friend was suffering, and what did you do? Did you come to console him? No. You came to belabor him with your accusations, trying to find out the cause of a just man's fate. So he then is about to curse these three. And Job intervenes. He says, no, 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 no. Forgive them, Lord. They knew not what they were doing. And God repents and says, and you see, he's a righteous man. And he, allow, he allows the three friends to go. And he frees Job from all his pains and sores and blesses him, and he's restored in his wealth. He's restored with a new family and so, so on. He's, he regains his friends again. Now, this has been a mysterious story throughout the ages that people have pondered the message here. But one of the essential points is to understand, yes, this point about why, God knows, but even in our misunderstanding or lack of understanding, 
to continue to love God. And you see, you have to remember at the very beginning of the story, God allowed Satan to test Job, you see. And he was tested, because, you know, you would think, why would he be tested if he's a virtuous man? The point is, he was tested because he was a virtuous man, you see. This is something we sometimes don't understand, that because he was strong, God knew he could bear it. He could bear what, the test that was coming to him as a proof of what a truly loving, righteous man, how that person behaves. And so Job, you could say, was an instrument in this case. And if you could take that forward many centuries, Christ came. He had no bad karma, but he was chosen to suffer. God allowed it, allowed suffering to the righteous. And this is a message that's hard to understand on the mental plane, but what it's saying is that our love for God must be unconditional. Do we love God simply because we live a nice life? This is what Satan was saying, you see. And to condition our love for God to the fact that we don't have tests, that things work out well for life, this is the devotion, you might say, of a merchant. Somebody who, I give you my love, God, and then you will give me blessings back. And unfortunately, this is the run-of-the-mill way that people's devotion often is. They see the proof of their love by outward circumstances. And it's something that we can't really do. We have to go beyond that and love God unconditionally. And this is a message of faith a message of having faith in God. Now, a second point is another story, is there was a man, uh, this, is, this one actually is a true story. There was a man, a uh, Jewish man, who lived in Warsaw during the Second World War. And of course, that was a very difficult situation to be in. He was in the Jewish ghetto, where most people died, hundreds of thousands. People died, and only a few survived. And he was one of those few. But he lost his entire family, and he was devastated. He was also angry, angry at life, angry at God. But he slowly rebuilt his life, and he moved to France, and he started again a second time. He says, I can't live like this, you know, in the, in the resentment. Uh, why did this all happen? Should it have been who's, somebody needs to suffer for what's happened in the past? And he'd reformed his life and he said, no, I can't live that way. I'm going to live in a way that allows me to move forward in life. And what should happen, there was a fire where he was and his house was burned down. And his family, a second family, wife, children, were all killed. And it, the fire was eventually put out, the forest around it was also burned, and it was put out and people came forward to him and said, this is terrible. 
I mean, what kind of karma do you have? You know, they, they didn't say those words, but they were so many words that that's worth it. And we must find retribution for this. Who started that fire? Who started? Somebody started that fire in some fashion or another. We must find the reason for that. And the man at that point, he stopped. He says, no. This is second time, you see. I cannot do that. I cannot go back. I must go forward. However it started, if you wish to pursue it, that is your business, but I am not going to do that. I am going to go forward with my life. And I think this message, and which he did, and he actually ended up becoming a very serviceful member of his community of the, of the, of the area there and became a highly regarded, positive person this scorching that he had to go through in his two experiences in that lifetime had molded him into something special. And he became uh, quite a saintly person. Now, I read a quote uh, while I was found that second story. And this, this is a rabbi who, uh, by the name of uh, Kushner, wrote this. And he said, we may not ever understand why we suffer or be able to control the forces that cause our suffering, but we can have a lot to do to say about what, what suffering does to us and what sort of people we become because of it. Pain makes some people bitter and envious and makes others sensitive and compassionate. It is the result, not the cause, of pain that makes some experiences of pain meaningful and others empty and destructive. The essence of this being is what the readings today have been emphasizing and what we want to remember is that what happens to us is, and, and this is not to discount karma, but, but, and it's not to discount the lessons that can come out of looking at the situation of why we've suffered or why there's pain. But one of the things to, I think to understand, and it's also been my experience in, is that in the moment, it's always usually not the best time to try to probe why, that question that Job was always asking. It's not our first priority. The first priority is why, maybe, but what? What am I going to do about it? How am I going to respond? Because in the moment of suffering, we're usually in a state where they're not really capable of making the best decisions and coming to the best conclusions. There comes a time when we look back, just as in the Bhagavad Gita, it says, oh, Sanjay, what did they on the battlefield? But you see, he's looking back after those events had passed. And then you learn your lessons and you think, okay. But in the moment, it's better to ask, what do I do about it? Years ago, there was a early days, I remember uh, Swami Kriyananda, we had a little bit of trouble here, uh, paying our mortgage at that time. And uh, 
people, the institution that held the mortgage was going to foreclose on the property and notified Swami that he had a very short period of time unless he paid a hefty sum in those days was considered a hefty sum. We had very likelihood we could have lost the property. And Swamiji was at our early center in those days that we had in Sacramento. This was 1970, I think it was. We, yeah, we had a center there before Donato <laughs> Maria and the others that went down there. We had a very early one. And he was there with the two people that were running that center. And uh, they said, oh, Swamiji, don't get upset. Don't, you know, because Swami said, well, I just got this news. And he, was, he wasn't upset, but he was shocked, you might say, you know, of, over the situation. And they said, oh, Swami, here, I'll make you some tea. Sit down, relax. And Swami very vigorously said, tea? I don't want tea right now. I, know, I want to know what am I going to do about this? And he immediately got on the telephone and he started making phone calls to be able to rustle up the ability to make that payment. And this is the response. You have a situation, what am I going to do about it? And move, like that gentleman in France, in a positive direction. Do whatever it takes that is in a positive motion. And one, direct, one step in a positive direction will inevitably lead you to a second step. And you start to move in that direction and then you can look back and you can think about it. And so this isn't to say to be able to respond or that there's not karma involved in this. Of course it is. There is karma involved in all suffering and things that happen. But what makes it a useful test and challenge versus something that's destructive that causes us pain for perhaps a lifetime, and who knows how many lifetimes in the future. It's our response to how we respond to them. And responding in those qualities that were exhibited by Job, Job he was faithful to the end because he had faith that God's love, in God's love, it was through that love that gave him faith. And I think, I think if we look at our own lives, in love, you could say that in love, faith is natural. Of course, it's that, it's that faith that of course God is going to help me. God, of course God is going to be there at the time, at some point. His timing may always not be to our satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> that in his time, God will be there. And he's there with me right now. Maybe I can't see him, I can't feel him, but I have that faith that God is there. And it's that my love will be there, come what may. And I think this is the attitude that we need to go forward to face whatever test that comes to us. We're in God, and then in God we find that the solutions actually, he gives us also the solutions to whatever those tests may be. Again, in his own timing. But nevertheless, we find that we're given the strength to meet those tests 
if we ask for that help. And we can't ask if we're turning our back to God, you see. The answers may be there all the time, but unless we're facing in the direction of from where those answers are coming, they may just pass us right on by. And we end up in a situation that is suffering indeed, until finally we stay there, we stay in that suffering, we feel that pain, till ultimately we must learn, we, there is only one escape, if you will, or one exit, and that's to turn and face God, face the light. That takes a certain amount of strength, takes courage, but we learn that that's the only answer in the long run. Face, face God with faith, with courage, and the answers will come. Much joy to all of you. Thank you very much.